in these two psalms that have similarities, the the superscript, the the titles of them, which were included uh, with the psalms originally. There's there's some things in your Bible that were added later, but the the title of Psalm 38, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance, and of Psalm 39 to the chief musician to Jeduthun, a psalm of praise. Those were there in the original. Uh, those were there, and so they've got these two separate titles, which seem to make them separate, but there's a lot of ideas in them that are similar, and there is a heaviness uh, about these psalms. There is a heaviness within them that um, is difficult. It, it's difficult to, to hear. It's difficult to, uh, to listen to. Um, so Psalm 38 opens with a request of God. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. And we've seen a similar request of David in Psalm 6, verse 1. Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. And uh, Psalm 6 and Psalm 38 both belong to a group of psalms that are called the penitential psalms, talking about sin. Now, these groupings of the psalms came later. This is not part of the original text. This is not, uh, the groupings do not feel psalm in like the old English that God would talk in. <laughs> they're just, they're added later. And I've seen, uh, I've seen lists of these which include six altogether. I've seen lists that include eight. I've heard a sermon that says there's seven, one for every day of the week. And so it's all over the place. And so can I beg you, please, can I beg you, please, and me, please, I can beg myself also, to spend time in God's Word and ask Him to lead you into all truth by His Spirit. That's the promise we have from John 16, verses 13 through 15. It says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Again, John 16, verses 13 through 15. Guide. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. The word is hadegeo, hadegeo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, to show the way. The root of the word is to travel, to journey. So as you are going along on your journey, the Holy Spirit will show you the way, leading you into all truth. What does the Spirit take from to declare to you? Jesus said he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus? The Word of God, the way, the truth, the life. And the Holy Spirit is taking from the Word of God, taking from Jesus, and is giving to us and showing in it, showing us the truth from that. So you could have a favorite teacher, you could have a favorite speaker, you could have you could our goal here is not for you to agree with everything that Rick and I say. Or if we have a guest speaker to say, oh, well, gosh, they're up there. They must be right. 
our goal is to equip you to go out and serve as the Lord would have you serve. Not even as we would have you serve necessarily, but as the Lord would have you serve. Hopefully we're being obedient to him and listening to him and directing in a way he's made us under shepherds of Jesus, the great shepherd. But it's not for you to agree to us. And just because you have two people that seem, another says they're eight, another says they're seven. Just because they're informed doesn't mean that they're absolutely right. When Paul was talking uh, to the Thessalonians, right? They didn't accept the word, but then he went to the town of Berea, and it says that the Bereans were of no- more noble character, for they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was correct. I can't say I'd be super happy for you to come up and say, man, you really blew it on that, and here's why. <laughs> but once I calmed down and got over myself, I would be. If you help me see truth, I love that. I'd love for you to come to me and say, this, this, I'm not sure that this is right, what you said. I love, uh, I love to listen to Joe Foch, but there's times that I listen to Joe and I go, I don't think that's right, Joe. I'm not sure that's entirely correct, what you're saying. And so, you know, the enemy, he wants to exploit anything that he can. And so he would, he would take those things and say, oh, see, they got it wrong. So you should question everything else that you know is right already. When we were at the uh, uh, group of us that went to the huddle, which is a, 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 a conference of New England uh, there, and he talked about when uh, he was going into the, in the, the ministry and there was this training program, and they, he, uh, the person that was leading it said, uh, how many of you know, these are all young guys that were going to go into the ministry, how many of you know John 3.16? And they all raised their hand. And then they said, uh, they quoted 1 Corinthians 8.2. It says, the one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. We've seen John 3.16 you know, at every football game, at every major event, believe in him, should have everlasting. I know that. Do you know it? None of us do. What we think we know, we don't yet know as we ought to know. We are going to be growing in the knowledge of him till the end. And at some point, the plug is going to go in, and then we will know as we are fully known. Up till then, learn. Up till then, search. Up till then, find out why. If God's going to plug us in and we're going to know everything, why should we bother knowing it now? Because he's calling us to rule and reign with him. Do you want a child with no experience to learn to come along and have authority? None of us want that in our life. It's havoc, right? How do we get this under control? God gives us experience through our lives to come to know him, to come to understand him. And that searching develops us. And the suffering develops us. And the learning encourages us. And he moves us along. You are not passive people in the church of God. You're not. You're not called to be. 
And if you are, and I have been many times, so this I'm not, you know, I'm, I know I'm six inches taller than you here, but uh, I'm not asking you to more. Wherever you are, there's more. Wherever you are, you're going to know more closely as you ought to know. So search him out. Search out the scriptures. Keep reading. Keep asking. Keep being led. All right, so back to Psalm 38. Let's read it. Psalm 38, starting in verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. My loins are full of inflammation. There is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare, enemies are vigorous, and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Let's just have a further word of prayer here. God, uh, there is something that you want to tell each of us this morning. Maybe many things, God. And would you open our hearts to hear would you open our hearts to, to be receptive soil to the seed of your word, that it might grow and produce, God? If there's hardness, God, help us to set the hardness aside and allow you to blow things up. If there's rocks that need to be removed, God, that keep the soil from being deep, help us to dig them up. And where life's worries, riches, and pleasures are crowding out your word, would you help us to do the gardening we need, Lord? Father, help me to be a man approved who correctly handles your word. Help us to learn a little bit more of what we ought, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a darkness in Psalm 38 that's like palpable. You can feel the distress and the discouragement that David is. And we're not given much in the way of clues that tell us what occasioned its writing. 
There's sin, there's illness, there's distancing from him of friends and family. There's a multiplication of enemies. We don't know if these are real, if they're being used as metaphors. Certainly, David has had times in his life of great distress. He was king for 40 years. Uh, and you might go, oh, if I were king. One of my favorite books is uh, If I Ran the Circus by Dr. Seuss, right? What would I do? I'd add this and I'd add that, and it would be amazing, but I don't want to run the circus. The difficult place to be for all the things that you might say, ooh, these wonderful, wonderful perks of being the guy on top. There's a lot that goes on, and there's a lot of people that want to be on top instead of you. So king for 40 years, and the 15 years after he was anointed by Samuel to become king and before he acceded to the throne, what's going on in his life? Saul's chasing him around, trying to kill him, falsely accusing him continually of scheming against him when David's not doing that. Was this from the time of Bathsheba, right? We all know that. We all know the sin that he engaged with with Bathsheba, committing adultery with her, her getting pregnant, her hus- him having her husband killed to try to hide that it happened, first trying to get him to come back from war and sleep with her to hide it. And then when he wouldn't do that, sending him back and saying, hey, withdraw from this guy and let him get killed in the battle. And we know from Psalm 51 the things that David suffered there. Is this from that too? Is this part of the same experience? Is this when he was on the run from Saul and Saul found out that he had gone to this town, the town of Nob, and had gotten bread from the priest in this town? And when Saul found out about it because of this guy Doeg, the Edomite, he commanded not only that the priest out, and one man escapes to come back and be a priest to David from that. Was David so discouraged when he heard that? Is that what's causing this distress in him, this difficulty? Is it when God struck down Uzzah as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, they're trying to bring it back into Jerusalem, or really to Jerusalem for the first time, and he, he reaches out his hand, Uzzah, to study the cart, to steady the cart, And God strikes him, and it says David was afraid of God at that time. Is that producing all these feelings in David? Is this related to that time? Because what God God had done was beyond his understanding. Is it when his son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar, and he does nothing about it, and he doesn't intervene, and it sets a chain of events that his other son, another one of his sons, Absalom, kills Amnon, and eventually goes through a coup and David's exile for a time. Is that what's producing these things? You can see enemies multiplying and all these things. You can see distress that would come from this. There's lots of options for when David may be feeling as he is in Psalm 38, but we're not told what the occasion is that brings this. There's not only for him the physical and relational issues with people here, but also this sense of punishment from God. In your wrath, the word wrath is ketseth. It's with a sense of rage. In your hot displeasure, chemah. David uses it, as I said before, in Psalm 6, here in Psalm 38. 
There's other instances in Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it's translated there as fury, wrath, poison. Those things were written that he would have read, where God, where that Chemah had been against somebody. And he's saying, this is what's happening to me here. Turn to where this word is used. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And we'll start in uh, verse 4. Do not think, and uh, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to go into uh, the promised land that they've, they've fallen um, uh, in the wilderness over 40 years, the generation that came out of Egypt, that he had saved from Egypt. And he's addressing them here. And he says, do not think in your heart After the Lord your God has cast them out before you, the peoples of those lands, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. I'm so good, he obviously wanted to give it to me. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You are not willing to listen. Three times, he says, this is not because of your righteousness. This is not, it is not, it is not. It is because of the wickedness of the people. Verse 7, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, You provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. That word, verse 8, no, it's down later, sorry. Uh, Verse 9, when I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So God obviously miraculously kept him, right? 40 days without food you could do, 40 days without water ain't happening unless God's making it happen. Then the Lord, verse God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. It's kind of funny that God says your people that you brought out. but They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. They had created, they, they um, started to complain to Aaron, whom Moses had left behind, 
uh, where's Moses? We don't know where Moses is. Who's going to lead us? And they make this calf, this golden calf, this molded image. And, and, and Aaron says, here are your gods, O Israel. Here's somebody to lead you. Here's something to placate you. Here's something to make you feel like everything's going to be all right. How many millions of things are there out there in the world right now to make us feel all right? If we just counted the pharmaceutical commercials alone, right? Not to mention the cars we could get, the beer we could drink, the watches we could have, so many things to make us feel okay. And I looked, uh, furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. God could have fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by continuing just Moses and his line. He could have done it. That was not beyond him, right? Moses fit the bill. So I turned, Moses says in verse 15, I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands, and I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first, forty days and forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. So now it's eighty. Another forty days and forty nights that Moses goes into here. Because of all your sin, which you committed and do it wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And God relents from his, the destruction that he has planned. David certainly would have been aware of this story. The hot displeasure that he is talking about is one that was Israel on the brink of being wiped out from God. And Moses, having had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no water, another fast for 40 days and 40 nights, pleading to God, obviously, because he said, and God listened to me. So this is the weight that David feels at this time. This is... When he says, chasten me in your hot displeasure, everybody but Moses. Difficult times for our brother David. Moses recites, he goes on to recite four other times in verses 22 and 23 that they rebelled, and there are plenty of times after that. And David is feeling here that God's reached this point with him. And there's no Moses there to fast 40 days and 40 nights for David. There's nobody to stand in the gap for him. Who will speak to the Lord on his behalf? If we look at verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 38, we see that he is both beyond speaking and beyond hearing himself. He can't even communicate to God because he feels so downtrodden and things are so difficult. He says, don't rebuke me in your wrath or chasten me in your hot displeasure because he feels like God is 
about to destroy him. He's in the process of doing it. God's hand is heavy upon him. How heavy is the hand of God? So what he knows of God in verses 1 through 3 are your wrath, your hot displeasure, your arrows, your hand, your anger. This is all he sees of God in the beginning of this psalm. They're all directed against him, not against his enemies, but against him. He's pierced by God's arrows. He's pressed down by his hand. You can almost feel the weight that David's talking about, and you can see what it can result in. Because what we see throughout the rest of this psalm is he focuses almost completely on himself and his situation. When all we see of God is wrath, hot displeasure, arrows, a smashing hand, and anger, then we are going to focus on our situation, and we are not going to turn to him. We are going to struggle turning to him. And David has two points where he kind of brings the nose up of this quickly descending plane. Verse 3, my flesh, your anger, my bones, my sin. Verse 4, my iniquities. He says they have gone over his head. And you get this picture of David. And we do this at times as well. We manage our iniquities. We tread water with them, right? The, uh, so straight up and down in the water, you know what they call that position? If you're in water, that could be over your head. That's the drowning position. Because it's very easy for you to sink that way. If you're in water over your head, stretch out. Use the buoyancy of your own body because straight up and down will send you down a lot quicker. And we get this picture of David trying to manage his sin, trying to manage his iniquities. And we do that ourselves. We try to manage our iniquity. I got it. I got it. I'm still breathing. I can still keep going here. I don't really have to deal with this. And then they become too much for us. And they're over our head. We've been enslaved the entire time, but we weren't willing to admit it because we could kind of keep up appearances. We could kind of keep going in that. And David says, they have gone over my head. We, don't, we just don't recognize or acknowledge it, and suddenly we go under. Verse 5, my wounds, my foolishness. Verse 7, my loins, my flesh. Verse 8, my heart. Verse 9, my desire, my suffering. He says, all my desire is before you. And I think it's, I think it's true. We need to own our desires. And I've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. Like, God, you have given me a way to take things that are really difficult for me and give them to you and walk away and go do your will. And it's saying, this is what I want, being honest with God. This is what I want. Even the parts of it that, are, that I know aren't right, that I know are sinful. God, this is what I want, but I know that you love me. And I know you are giving me what I need, and what you are giving me is far better than what I want. And then I can walk away. And I, 
I realized recently, like, I had forgotten it for a month. And I had this so hard. Why? Oh, God, I, I want this. And then I was like, oh, my goodness. Jameson, when, he's, uh, when he thinks something's good, he goes like this. A little snap and thumbs up, right? And he gives you a face like, oh, yeah, I can give this to God. And I think a lot of times our desires, they're before God. He sees them all. It's not, he's not like, oh, really? You wanted that? I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Our desires are before him, but we put them between us and God. Almost as a wall. We can't see. Our desires blind us to who he is and what he wants for us. He says, my desires are, are there in front of you. Verse 10, my heart, my strength, my eyes. Verse 11, my loved ones, my friends, my relatives. And none of them are for him in this situation. They're all against him. Verse 12, my life, my hurt. Verse 13 and 14, he can't even speak. He can't hear. He's like one who is deaf and mute. Verse 15, we get this little glimmer of truth. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. But verse 16 shows us it's, it's about what other people, what other peeps make. It's still dumbed down to what God would want him to see. Verse 16, Vocus is still on the horizontal. He wants God to hear so his enemies won't exalt over him. Verse 17, my sorrow. Verse 18, another little flame springs up. I'll declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But again, verse 19 and 20, it's about other people as opposed to being about God and what God wants to see happen. My enemies... Those who hate me wrongfully, those who render evil for good, my adversaries. Verses 20 and 21, we get a little more light, a little more flickering flame. You know, if you was trying to light our uh, grill, we use charcoal. And uh, so the flame, you know, I light the paper, it keeps going out. You know, I'm like, oh, and just a little flame pops up, and you're like, maybe this time it'll catch. This little flickering flame. Coming up in David, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Even if it feels that all you have from God are piercing arrows and the weight of his hand, his presence is far better than his absence. David expresses his best my of the psalm at the end, my salvation. Going back to God in spite of all the other mys that we express to him, my salvation, and holding on to that. Psalm 39, written to the chief musician, to Jeduthun. Uh, he is one of the three main worship leaders appointed by David. Uh, you can read more about him in First Chronicles chapter 6, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 25, and Second Chronicles 35. He's sometimes also called Ethan. Um, this one, maybe we can date a little bit. We can have some minuscule idea that if he's writing this to the chief musician, it, it, it must be at some point after he has acceded to become king, 
and he's appointing these different people to do different things. So it's sometime during his reign as king, um, but we don't know for sure. Uh, Jedathan is, uh, he and the, so there's three main, Heman, Asaph, and Jedathan. So when you see those names, now sometimes there's other people named the same thing in the Bible, but it may be one of those three worship leaders, and they had a group of almost 300 people that were appointed to lead worship in the church. So we're short a few up here. Um, and, and, and maybe they messed up songs. They're like, hey, hey, we're just going to move to the next one in the middle of temple worship. I don't know. And I think that God would laugh at that. And he'd be like, that's cute. You know, just like, you know, when our kids do something. So um, uh, Heman and Jedithin are also said to be seers. And so you might go, uh, what's a seer, right? Well, it's a prophet. Is it different than a prophet? Because you have both names. Well, there's a scripture in 1 Samuel. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it says seers are now called prophets, and they're the same thing. So explanation given and mystery solved, seers and prophets are the same things. I find more positivity in Psalm 39, um, but there's parts that I struggle with here also, so let's go ahead and read that. Uh, I said, verse 1, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man that is best state is but vapor. Selah. What do you think about that? Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He, reaps up, he heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. While both uh, Psalm 38 and 39 reference not speaking, it is the weight of sin and his focus on it that stops him in 38. Here it seems to be a choice that he wants to avoid sin, but he goes a little too far. And he says, I'm going to keep, I'm going to help, I'm going to hold my peace even from good. I'm not even going to talk about good. I don't think that's a good idea. I think if there is good and there's good, there is a lot of good. What is the earth filled with? The goodness of God. There is a lot of good, and we should be speaking about it. Don't hold your tongues back from speaking of the goodness of God. Even when the people around you 
will think you're nuts. How could you think God is good? How could you think there's anything good? There's wars, and there's famine, and there's hatred, and there's... The earth is full of the goodness of God. Before I get dragged down here myself, um, we need to keep praising him. We need to lift up the truth. We need to speak the things of God. David does speak in verses 4 and 5, and he asks God for really important things. Help me to know. Help me to know. Are you asking God to help you to know? To grasp, here he's speaking specifically about the, the brevity of life. We had eternity and tried to, 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 to find your spot on the timeline of eternity. The, the dot would be so small you couldn't find it. It's a vapor, the measure of your days, to know how frail we are. It's a good thing to know how frail you are. Not in the beat yourself up, oh, woe is me, Eeyore, thanks for noticing me type of stuff. But to know how frail you are and how much you need God and how frail the people around you are. We're so hard on ourselves and other people. They're frail. You're frail. It's okay. God knows it. And he has good for you. the best of us without God can scarcely be seen. There, you know, so if we amass all that Elon Musk accomplishes and Bill Gates and all these guys, the best of that is a vapor. It's like you can look through it. It's not, it's not lasting. It's not there. You at your best when you are fully self-realized and you've gone through all the self-help books to get you there and you found just the right therapist, and listen, I'm not against those things. I'm being glib and I should be less than glib about that because they can be helpful. My point is, if you were to achieve your best possible self, it's a vapor. How long could you hold on to it? If you held on to it your whole life, 120 years, that's it. What do you think of that? That's what Selah means, for those of you that don't know the joke. What do you think of that? Do think of that. Spend time thinking of that. Even the best of the best of what he accomplishes, it's vanity, it's meaninglessness. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. He said, whose will those things be which you have provided? This guy had it going. He's like, I've got so much, my storehouses can't handle them. I'll build new storehouses, and I'll eat and drink, drink and be merry for the rest of my life. And God says, this night, your life will be demanded of you then who's going to get everything you stored up? Full storehouses. And better than anything that we could ask for, anything we could hope for. When is it not vanity? Where is their meaning when it's not a vapor, when you are storing up things that endure? In Psalm 38, he had said, all my desires before you. Here he says, what do I wait for? 
My hope is in you. We spend so much time waiting. We spend some, we waste so much time on the things that we desire. All your desires for God, he under, before God, he knows it. You don't have to keep, I don't have to keep reciting it to him. God, did you know what I really want? Were you aware? God, I just, I just got this Amazon gift book for before Christmas. Did you know these were on my list, Lord? It's all before him. He knows all the desires. What do I wait for? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. He knows that God is his deliverer. Uh, and he's talking less about himself and more about the state of mankind in this in Psalm 39 that he did in Psalm 38. But the language in verses 9 and 10 sound an awful lot of what he was experiencing in Psalm 38. Both talk about plague. Both talk about being mute. Both talk about the hand of God being against him. But in verse 11, he talks about how when God rebukes, it's for correction. It is not just to crush us. It is not to destroy us. It is to bring us to a place where we are better and we have more than what we started with. It is not to destroy us. He says, uh, um, when, he, when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Moths don't live very long. right? We kind of hope they fly into our little buzzer. Or we get the, the rackets that have the thing on them. Some of us have fun with that, and some of you think those of us that do that are cruel. Um, your beauty... It melts. It's going to melt anyway. It doesn't last. So let's worry less about these tents that we're living in, about these jars of clay uh, that we are. And it seems he's praying more and crying to God more, and he's more aware of his relationship with him. I struggled with verse 13 because I was like, it seems like David's getting it. And then he says, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. And I, so I was like, maybe this is different in different versions, right? So I, I looked up, you know, these different versions, and it was, it was even worse. So this is New King James is, Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. New International, look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and end no more. New Living Translation. I give it a big thumbs down. Sorry. Leave me alone so I can smile again before I am gone and exist no more. English Standard Version. I like ESV. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Turn your gaze away from me that I am again that I may again be cheered before I depart and am no more. King James uh, I like best, but I don't know if it's right or not. Oh spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. But so many of these turn your gaze, turn your gaze, look away, turn your angry gaze, and I be cheered up. It just it sounds so blithe. It sounds and we don't want God taking his eyes off of us. 
we do when our ways are wrong. Men love darkness because their ways are evil. God looking at us. I don't know exactly what's going on with David here. I know I know that David does not have the same perspective as we do and as we should. In the title of Psalm 38, David writes, to bring remembrance. And Leviticus 2 talks about the grain offering. It will be burnt as a memorial to God. So we have this picture of the grain offering, and it was often bread, and it was bread with no leaven. It could not have leaven, and it was a memorial before God of the person that brought it. So who's the bread of life? Who has no leaven? Who stands before God continually to make intercession for us? Jesus. I wonder if David saw and knew what we know, what the Psalms would be like. What songs would he have written? if he knew about the redemptive nature of Jesus Christ, if he knew that his heir would wipe out all of his transgressions. Well, he would be like us who do not yet know as we ought to know. And there'd be some times of difficulty, but I think there'd be some soaring, amazing praises that he wrote as well. If he could write what he wrote, without knowing the part of the story that we know, what would be shown in this. We have one that stands in the gap for us like Moses. 80 days without food and water. We have one better than Moses. And we have a memorial continually before God. So let's when we start getting into the mys, my life, my pain, my suffering, let's turn back to God. Understand who his hot displeasure, who his chema was completely poured out on, and that was on Jesus and not on us. And turn away from the selfishness and self-centeredness and the pity that we have for ourselves, and turn outward that we might serve others and be the servants of the Lord that he has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the parts that we don't quite get. And we thank you for what you have shown us so far And we thank you that you have given us your spirit to lead us into all truth. God, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you, the one who has given us all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, we'll be happy.